welcome to Academic Conversations with Merton and Morgan. I'm Mary. And I'm Alicia. And we're here to share content that supports and empowers students, parents, caregivers, and educators. Hey Alicia, it's been a while. Hi Mary. We're back. I'm excited. We have some new topics. We have some new topics. We've been through quite a few um, situations since we last put our podcast out, to say the least. But things are happening and we need to talk. So first off, there's been a lot of buzz on social media, the internet, and other sources about a new federally funded study that found that by third and fourth grade, kids who received reading recovery instruction had lower scores on state reading tests than a comparison group of kids who did not receive reading recovery. Well, Annette, um, as you know, I am a former reading recovery teacher. I have a lot of respect for reading recovery, but I know that through my experience that although it is a strong intervention for some, that there are still readers that have been left behind or that have needed additional help and intervention, especially in the long term. So this, this bill really hits home for me especially, and there's been some controversy around reader recovery, its cost, and the effectiveness of it long term. So that's I think that's what you and I are going to kind of delve into today. Yes, we're going to talk about that, and we can also provide some information, a link about the study for anybody who wants to look at it. It came out of the University of Delaware, and it was in... Um, study of the long-term effects of reading recovery. So I want to add basically what you just said, Alicia, which is that I also was reading recovery trained. Um, I never was a reading recovery teacher, but when the group model came out, the CIM model, Comprehensive Intervention Model, as an ESL professional developer, I was given the chance to participate in training with some very accomplished reading recovery teacher leaders who to this day, I will say, taught me everything I needed to know at the time yes. about teaching reading. And I've told everybody um, when this topic comes up that I have one child who I know for sure would not have learned to read the way that he did if he if I hadn't had that training because I worked with him at home. And, um, you know, that says a lot. However... Like you, I've noticed that there are kids who need some different things. And, you know, my view has always been that there's room at the table for any research-based strategy that helps a kid learn how to read. We don't really have to exclude anybody. So, um, right. I'm just going to jump in. If you are not, if you're new to our podcast or if you're not familiar with us, mm -hmm. uh, Mary and I do work full-time in an elementary schools where we service um, students kindergarten through fifth grade and we also work with with teachers in our school as well and we have a company on the side that supports parents and educators and students and we work one-on-one -on -one, um, providing personalized instruction for students and so for us we're able to see it not only from the school view but also from the needs of the readers themselves who struggle or who maybe not necessarily struggle, but just need some of the holes filled in for them, if you will. And we have definitely learned through this process in our company that 
one size does not fit every reader. And we've known that, but I think it's really helped us working with these, or for me, working with these kids one-on-one -on -one to really try to figure out what exactly this particular reader needs and what are we going to use to help them. Mm -hmm. And I still use a lot of the reader recovery strategies, but often mm -hmm. I have to dig or figure out what I'm going to do for this particular reader. Same. In fact, I think some of our best conversations that we have these days are about the kids that we provide diagnostic assessments to and a learning plan for, and then start to deliver those services to the learner. And then we use what we know and we have to make a swerve or make a turn and have to think about, well, this isn't consistently working for this student. Sometimes it seems like it is. And then it doesn't anymore. So because we are a business and we have our own funds, we've been able to purchase materials that we need as we find we need them. We have been able to be discerning about what approaches we're going to use and go ahead and try those approaches. We have the trust of the families of the kids that we're working with. So it's really helped me see a lot of things that might be missing from school life that are there when you have your own um, agency to make your own decisions. And I'm sure any teacher that you would talk to would be able to agree with that. Yes. So we have seen some commonalities in the kids. We've seen a lot of things that they struggle with. And a lot of times you and I feel like have come to a point where we say, it's another kid like this, right? Yes. Okay. Do you want to talk about that? What um, are the commonalities? We we have seen that they either do not like reading. Reading is an obvious struggle, which is why um, their families reach out to us. But specifically, um, being able to break apart a word, decode a word, phonics strategies seem um, to be something that they're lacking, which affects their writing as well. So being able to spell correctly, being able to notice Patterns and words to help them decode or read new words seem to be a commonality no matter the grade mm -hmm. or the age level or Mary lives in Kentucky and I live in Indiana across the bridge. So I've been able to see students that live in Kentucky and go to school in Kentucky, but also live in Indiana and go to school in Indiana. And it does not matter if they're in private school, public school, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Those, those holes, as I call them, are still there. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, is the biggest commonality. It's the phonics and the writing. And, of course, both affect reading. Yes. And also, I would say um, student fluency with high-frequency words. They often don't have those. And the strategies used to help them learn them definitely do not work for a lot of students. At least they don't work for them to become truly fluent with those words. They may memorize them for a time, but then they're not able to read them in text or write them right. later. Do you want to quickly say what high fre frequency words are? They come from lists with names like the Dolch list okay. and the Fry list. So the Fry word list is based on something called the American Heritage Word Frequency Book. And those are ranked by frequency, which occur in reading material that are typically for grade um, students in grades third grade through the ninth grade. There are about 87,000 words that are ranked. And then you may have also heard something called dolt sight words, which are also high frequency words 
and those are for students that are typically in kindergarten through second grade that they would see in reading. Mm -hmm. So both of those lists are used um, and referred to frequently. But we're learning more about high frequency words and, and sight words too. We did a, um, a Facebook Live on that last summer. Yes, and we need to post that again because that is still a really big topic of conversation, trying to find the best ways to help kids remember sight words rather than just memorizing the whole word or just by, well, okay, sight words, high frequency words, they mean words that kids need to have completely known so that they aren't even thinking about the word when they see it. So for us as adults, a lot of words are sight words because we've read so much that we don't really have to stop and think about the word. But when we come to a text where there's a lot of unfamiliarity, then we do have to slow down and do that and we really notice it. So for kids, they need to have a big bank of those words that are solidly known so that they don't have to stop and think about decoding or remembering every single word. We've also noticed that although um, students may be able to read them quickly and fluently, they, they, um, that doesn't mean they can necessarily write them quickly or fluently or spell them correctly. So there's a disconnect there as mm -hmm. well. And they, they should be able to read and write them. Right. And not being able to read them, I would say, decreases a kid's motivation to read. And not being able to write them does the same thing uh, towards their attitude about writing. When they think they have to ask to spell every simple word, then they don't want to write anymore. And you can't really say to them, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, because they do worry about it. They want it to be correct. And, and a lot of the things that we have, we have seen also is they may have a great sentence or story with great vocabulary, and they veer off from writing that down because they do hesitate to spell, or they're like, I can't do it. So they change what they were going to say which was so higher level yes. orally because they can't do it written. Mm -hmm. I'm picturing one kid that I work with and have worked with for about a year now, and he's that exact kid. He has such a high oral vocabulary, and he knows what he wants to write, but I've seen him um, decrease the rigor of what he's writing just because he doesn't want to have to try to figure out all the words. And because I get to work with him one-on-one, -on -one, I can say, uh-uh-uh, that's not right. what you said. Let's, let's do, do it. it. Let's, right. let's write what you said. And he'll, he'll agree to do it because he knows I'm there to, to support him. But I can see how probably if he's in a bigger setting with more kids, he probably does that quite a bit. Right. And just sticking on the, the high-frequency words for a minute, we did learn last summer when we were talking about sight words, high-frequency words, that most high-frequency words can be learned and should be learned through explicit phonics instruction. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting, too. And that just goes back to what we were saying earlier about the missing, the missing elements. Yes. They all, they all fit together yeah. and work together and support mm -hmm. one another. Right. So these, these needs that kids have that we've seen in spelling and writing and decoding and high-frequency words... That loops us back to the study that we read about because sometimes there are arguments about how much phonics should you teach or how should it be taught, um, what's the basis for good instruction, and we both agree that we're not solidly on 
any side of the so-called reading wars, we're on the side of kids getting what they need. So these, these missing pieces that we found with kids are based on our own observation and our own relationships with those students. So I just want to make sure that we made that clear. What are some common myths about teaching reading? We've both been in schools for a long time. We've both been in a variety of schools and we've noticed that there are some things that people assume are taking place in schools as far as literacy instruction goes and literacy means writing as well of course um, but what are some things that people think might be happening in a school setting with literacy that maybe aren't really happening or not happening all the time or enough okay so the first one the we have found are all elementary teachers are experts at how to teach literacy effectively to all students. And although there are many excellent and effective elementary school teachers of reading, I think one thing to remember is elementary school teachers have to teach every subject. They are not content-based. It is reading, writing, spelling, social studies, math, science, mental health, and anything else that is added to their plate. And it takes years, I feel like, to really develop your literacy knowledge and skills. At least it has for me, 20 plus years. And the teacher prep programs, I think, do what they can. But I, I think you really need to be in the classroom and on the, on the ground and, in, and entrenched in it for a while to really, to really figure that out. And I think there's a lot of accelerated programs because there is such a teacher shortage and there just hasn't been time, I think, for everybody who teaches elementary school to really ingrain themselves in effective literacy practices. But we, we have definitely found after 20 plus years each in education that um, there is an assumption that, well, this person is in a school, they're a teacher, they're, gonna, they're going to know exactly what to do in every single um, literacy situation, and that's just not the case. And I would add that I don't know any teachers, no matter how proficient they are at teaching literacy, and I would put myself in the same category, who would call themselves an expert. They would right. say, what do you know? Can you teach me? <laughs> Here's a kid <laughs> who's struggling. I don't know why. What can I do? They, they always are looking for more, and that's because it's such a sophisticated skill. We've talked about this before. Our brains aren't um, hardwired to learn how to read. It's something that everybody learns how to do, and different brains do it differently, and it's really exciting that we can see what the brain does now. When I was a new teacher, we didn't have the same research that we right. have now, it's pretty fascinating, but um, if anything, for me, it has shown that it's even more complex than I realized it was. And I think um, you saying that, that it is such a complex and sophisticated process, Process. thank you, that the next few myths support that mm -hmm. and why decisions are made. I want to add one thing about all elementary teachers. I think it goes beyond teacher prep, and while I agree with you, teacher prep, and you and I have worked with very um, skilled, well, nationally known literacy professors, and they themselves have said 
if we were doing everything we need to do in the schools of ed, then you wouldn't have to backward engineer some of this literacy training. So then the question is, well, why, why aren't they getting it all? And I think there's a lot of answers to that. But one of the answers is that teachers only have so much time in their program. Like you said, they're generalists. And so they only have so much time to learn how to teach reading. But then after you learn, you need someone to be by your side who's an expert to help you. And so they often don't, teachers often don't have that. I didn't have it. I mean, I had to figure out what to do. And um, I was handed a stack of resources and said, here's how you teach it, you right. know, and that obviously is not the best way, but um, and then that adds to the, the piece about resources. What resources do teachers even have? What kind of training do they have to use them? What network do they yes. have? What support network do they have? What kind of coaching do they have? Um, all of that comes into play and also changing grades. You know, there are some schools that move teachers Yes. grades quite a bit and teaching literacy in a primary grade is very different from teaching it in an intermediate grade or teaching a kid in intermediate who has primary skills in literacy is different than teaching a primary age kid who has primary literacy skills. So all of those things together and more, those aren't the only things, but um, those are to me really big issues. Do you think I hit hit them? Is there something I left out? We're going to hit um, mandated literacy practices and initiatives. I think that's one of our myths maybe, but that is definitely a hurdle that teachers, they're not able to be as responsive as maybe they could be mm -hmm. because they're, um, because of their job and their role, they have to, they have to adhere to certain initiatives and mandates. Just the word mandate <laughs> tells you everything. <laughs> Okay, so what's another myth about how schools approach literacy instruction? Okay, so our second myth is the needs of students are always the focal point of decisions made in schools. Okay, what does that mean to you? Um, although schools are there for students, um, the decisions that are made do not always have the students at the center, unfortunately. It could be um, political reasons, mandates, staffing, cost of materials, lack of materials. There are several reasons, but I, I do feel like that when parents and community send their students there under the impression that every decision made, students are at the center. And I think although we try to do that as schools, it doesn't always end up that way. Mm -hmm. What do you yeah. think about that, Mary? I agree. I'm, you know, I'm a former ESL teacher. Still, ESL, you know, is in my heart. And it's a lot of what I bring to the students that I work with um, regarding oral language and culture and all the things that I learned over my years as a resource teacher and staff developer for um, English teachers of English learners. But I use them as an example of the needs of the students aren't always the focal point because, I mean, there's research that's been around for quite a while about the needs of kids who are multilingual and those still, at least in our settings, are not always being addressed. A lot of times they're just, they're just not, they're not made into a focus. And so there are a lot of reasons for that. And like some of them are the ones you mentioned, it's about funding, it's about materials. It's just, um, it's difficult because it's hard to bring the kids back into the light again sometimes when you're 
advocating for what they need. So they say, let's take a look at what students need here instead of some of the other things that are taking precedent. I think, do you think it, it goes back to what you had mentioned earlier about the reading wars, whether it's reading wars, math wars, whatever is kind of hot at the time or mm -hmm. this, this new thing is going to work. So we just kind of jump on the bandwagon of what's mainstream yes. or what's popular mm -hmm. without kind of taking a step back and saying, you know, is, has this been effective long-term? Have we really done our due diligence and done the research? Um, we just tend to kind of jump in with both feet. And I know from where I have worked many times, it takes a few years to see progress and we tend to change before I think we can really see the full, the full impact. Yeah, and there are certain outcomes that are more highly um, sought after by administration and district people than others. And that's understandable because those are accountability measures typically, but there are other measures that get you to the accountability <laughs> measures changing. And it seems like a lot of times we just don't have time to make those those changes in literacy development to then become the outcome on standardized measures that everyone wants. And of course, we all want our kids to do well on standardized measures, but the path to do that is not an easy one for a lot of students and takes time. Yeah, and for some students, their, their literacy progress can be quick, mm -hmm. but for others, it's, it's long-term. It, it takes a while. Right. So our third myth that we talked about was about summer school and how that can help any kid catch up to grade level peers. There's a lot of talk about summer programs and summer school. Right now our school year has just come to a close and I know there are a lot of, of great programs and parents are looking for those because they really want to help their students to continue to learn in the summer. However, some of those summer programs are I want to say marketed. I don't know if that's the right word, but they are they are shared and given uh, information about the outcomes that they'll have. And you and I've kind of looked at some of those and said, how can they promise that? Haven't we? I think that also we we talked about how literacy processes are so complex and and they're complicated. And I I think for summer school because it's such a short window, we have been involved in summer programs that are really streamlined, really effective, and the people who administer and who teach in the summer programs have been hand-selected according to their background and their knowledge, and those have been quite effective, but then you have the other extreme where it's maybe it's open to any teacher, K through 12, who may not know as much about the processes of reading, and like you said, it could just be here, we want you, here's a program, and we want you to implement it. And it's not always um, as effective as it would be if it were delivered by someone who would know how to be responsive to that program. Agree. I just found um, a flyer that you and I were looking at the other day that says your child will learn to read independently and that your child will develop a love of books. And I remember when you and I looked at that, and it's for kids going into first grade, and we said... Okay, how do you how do you promise that's going to happen in a summer program? Those would be goals, but I'm not sure that I wouldn't feel comfortable promising that to one of our client families 
um, as an outcome. So I'm just, I think for me, I just want people to be careful consumers about where they're putting their, their child or their learner, if they're a caregiver, where, where they are in the summer. Doing things is great and being around other kids is great and conversation with kids is great and all those interactive um, opportunities are great, but if someone's promising you a literacy outcome, you really need to ask some questions about why and, and how. And if they promise it to you in a short time <laughs> yeah. frame, because readers are, their needs are so individualized. I would be uncomfortable promising any kind of result by the end of the summer, because you just don't know what turn that reader's going to take and how much support and how much intensive support that they will actually need. Right. And literacy learning isn't a straight line forward. It's right. forward and back and forward and back. And it'll change based on the type of text or yes. the stage of child development that the learner is in. It has all sorts of advances and retreats. So yes. it's not really something that you can say, give me this many weeks and your kid will be on this level. Um, if we believed that, we would not feel very good about what we do, would we? Because <laughs> we're not able to do that. So, okay. So the next one, next myth is interventions help all kids improve in literacy. And I suppose we should say what interventions are just to make sure everyone knows. What are interventions? So interventions are anything that's done in a small group or one-on-one -on -one setting that is above and beyond the core instruction in literacy in the classroom. So for example, if a teacher said this student needs help in fluency intervention. You would pull them aside outside of the regular core reading instruction and work on fluency and it should be based on assessment results from that particular student's needs or the small group needs. And just to clarify, so, core instruction means the instruction that every kid gets in a classroom, yes, right? Okay. Correct. Which, as we just said, everything that you do for the whole group isn't going to necessarily land for every kid in the same way and help them to move forward. So sometimes additional supports are necessary. Yes. Okay, so sometimes there's an assumption that interventions will help every kid improve in literacy. So why is that a myth? I think because some of the interventions have a time frame and the outcome of the intervention is typically the same for every student at that time frame. And we've just kind of talked about how that's that's doesn't that's not realistic for every reader. And the needs are so varied and so vast that it's hard to secure that or say this will happen by the end of this period of time for this reader. Your reader will be able to do X, Y, and Z by the end of so many weeks. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, every kid doesn't need the same intervention, too. Like you were just saying, they have the same time frame for an outcome. A lot of times kids are given the same intervention because of resources, training, the same things that we just discussed, um, time considerations. I work with kids in small intervention groups, and I know it's really hard to find a time to get the kids that's not conflicting with something else they need to be doing in their classroom because the last thing we want to do is remove them from important instruction in the classroom. So there are lots of ways to deliver interventions. And I just, just to back up what you're saying, I know that was some of the kids that I've worked with this year. I started with one intervention strategy. And then as the year progressed, I had to keep making that same strategy more and more supportive. So 
if we were doing a phonics strategy, it may have been too general for the kids to really get a lot out of. So then I had to make it more specific to what they needed. And then that might have worked for a little while. And then I had to go even more specific to their needs. So if you don't know how to be responsive, which you use that word, and I love that word, um, if you don't know, oh gosh, this isn't working anymore, now I'm going to try this, uh, then you're kind of stuck as the person even delivering the intervention because everybody doesn't get the opportunity to make those decisions, nor do they have the training or the materials they need once they make the decision. Um, the, the other thing, too, I feel like that happens a lot, especially in schools, we, you have so many people who want to help, and their hearts are so big, and you get all these volunteers and great people who, who fall in love with the kids and just want to help them. And many times, those are the people, parent volunteers, church volunteers, community volunteers, who end up delivering the interventions. Sometimes, and we know through research that interventions are best delivered by the most knowledgeable people in reading. So although the intentions are pure and wonderful, many times because of money or lack of resources, um, maybe not the most qualified literacy expert in your building, if you want to use that word, um, is actually the one delivering the interventions as well. So it's hard for someone who has limited knowledge to be responsive. Absolutely. And I have seen administrators do a really good job of training people who don't yes. have necessarily the background in literacy, but that is a very, that's a long process. It takes a lot of commitment and it takes administrators who understand literacy themselves and really are going to continue to monitor the results of that intervention and make sure that the person delivering it gets what they need as far as um, continuing to see growth in the students. And, and I think that also it comes from wanting to ensure that their lowest achieving students have the most help. Yes, absolutely. And what's the last myth? The label research-based means a learner is getting quality literacy instruction. You want to <laughs> delve into research-based strategies, uh, materials? Yeah, I think just about everybody puts that on their materials now because it's... Um, well, first of all, because it helps sell products. When you say it's research-based, um, nobody wants to buy something that has no basis in research as far as its effectiveness. But I think also not all research is the same. Um, it can be really hard to find research on some approaches, programs, materials, strategies, to find research that wasn't done by the publisher so that's always a red flag to me when I see that the only thing I can find, that the only studies about something that I'm wanting to take a look at as far as literacy instruction doesn't have anything outside of just the company that created it. Or the professor, you know, there's some big names in schools that also publish materials. So, And Mary, we've kind of talked before how, um, going back to those reading wars mm -hmm. also are a reason for the research-based label on some products. Like we said before with the volunteers, maybe the desperate search for solutions for these low, low achievement on the standardized test because that's what we're measured by. Mm -hmm. And just to compete with the computer programs are coming to my mind because they compete with 
our short attention spans of our of our kids and their reading stamina doesn't seem to be as as long as it as it used to be i don't want to bash computerized reading programs because there are good ones out there, there great ones and out there, in their yes. place they ha definitely have a, a purpose i've seen kids um, get on a reading program that was perfectly matched for their skill level and their needs but like anything it could be used in a less student supportive way by maybe putting kids on it for too long or uh, not looking at the results that the program provides just putting kids on it right um, maybe putting too much trust in the program itself not adding your own judgment or your own knowledge to that but I know that many of the many of the computer programs do say research-based or there's some kind of research about how in this short amount of time it will do X, Y, and Z or get you to grade level reading if you do it so many days a week and for so many minutes. Yeah, and again, I think working with English learners helped me always look for research because there's rarely research for most products that are out there um, or, think, or materials that are for sale for literacy teaching, very few of them have been, have used English learners as part of their research basis. So yeah, starting to look at that really showed me that you have to be careful because even what looks like good or quality research can sometimes not be what you think it is when mm -hmm. I first look at it. Okay, so um, some some advice that we were reading from an administrator in a large school district in Ohio. Um, she was saying that she had advice to other districts who were looking at different programs and, and um, trying to decide whether to use those or not as far as literacy. Um, she said, do your research read a lot Look at, and look at do you have evidence of impact? And if you don't have evidence of impact, then you have to ask yourself why, and then what are you going to do about it? And I think that's really good advice because that marries research with outcomes. And I think the outcomes, this is my opinion, I want you to tell me what you think, but I think that the outcomes can't just be on a standardized measure. That outcomes have to be on a path or a trajectory toward being able to manage those standardized measures um, on a student on their own independently with a chance to do as well as they can and show what they know. I completely agree. Yeah. I, I think you're going to, you'll be able to see the transfer from the intervention into the student's work in, in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yes. So our next podcast is going to be about our first myth, right? We're going to go deeper into that topic which is the one about elementary teachers being experts in how to teach literacy effectively. So we're looking forward to that. Tune in. Yeah, tune in. And thanks for listening.